the National Archives podcast series. In England in 1435, it's, if not without some political and military problems, and they were substantial enough, was one of the most powerful countries in Europe. The English crown was in possession of nearly half of France. Um, young king Henry VI, on the cusp of adulthood, expected to um, emulate his outstandingly successful father, Henry V, whose um, great victories over the French had placed the right of his dynasty to the throne um, seemingly beyond question. The victory at Agincourt was seen as God's judgment on the legitimacy of the Lancastrian dynasty. And the nobility, well, perhaps um, squabbling among themselves, as, as occasionally happened, were not questioning the young king's right to be on the English throne and were still active in the war with France. 25 years later, England was on the verge of civil war, a civil war that would last a generation and was politically and financially on the verge of collapse. The crown was bankrupt and um, Henry VI's authority did not actually um, cover much of the south of England and parts of Wales. The Yorkist branch of the royal family were claiming the throne in their own right and much of the nobility who had been involved in private warfare through, through the 1450s um, also began to line up behind the two claimants to the throne. So the big question is how, in 25 years, did this occur? There are three or four major reasons, but the first one is the loss of France. first reason is perhaps the failure to maintain the Burgundian alliance, which had underpinned much of Henry V's successes. Um, the Duke of Burgundy returned to the French allegiance, and it's one reason why the English military position was in serious decline from about 1435. Inability to maintain um, or to manage the Crown's finances led to um, cuts in troops. It was alleged in the Parliament of 1450 that the Crown had debts of £372,000 with an income of around £33,000 a, um, a year. You can see the, sub you can see the substantial um, <laughs> deficit there. Also, some serious diplomatic errors which led to the reopening of the war in 1449 after a five-year truce with the English utterly unready... Um, to, to take up the war again and it's one reason why the collapse in English Normandy was so quick and it's not just the loss of Normandy which had been English since 1417 since Henry V had conquered it but also of Gascony which had been English for um, three centuries by this period and it's hard to overstate the, the scale of this as a national disaster compounded actually by the humiliation of the speed of the collapse and the complete failure of Henry VI to actually fight in defence um, of his territories and his subjects at all. It's perhaps the only thing that maybe you've rescued the English situation in 1450, but Henry VI does not um, cross the channel. Image of um, a book which details the pledges of royal plates and jewels to creditors um, uh, to finance the war in, in, in the 1440s. Um, it's an illustration of how the Crown was having to grant out a lot of its, um, a lot of its wealth to, to actually raise enough cash. This particular item describes um, a tablet of gold um, of the Passion of Christ, made in the manner of a book, garnished with 40 diamonds, 20 baileys, which are a type of precious stone, 20 sapphires, and on it goes and on it goes. The, the book itself, was, um, or the, or the um, tablet, was worth £110. Um, the rather smaller writing at the bottom details how, in succession, it served um, as surety for a loan to Cardinal Beaufort, 
to William de la Poole, then Earl of Suffolk, and subsequently to John Duke of Somerset. So you can see the same item has been granted out again and again to, um, to, to, to stand as surety. Second document is a petition by a Piers of Langfranc, who was a Gascon, who claims to have borne arms in Henry VI's service for the space of 14 years without pay. He, he claims to have suffered imprisonment four times, the last of which, after the final fall of English Gascony, um, led him suffering a year and a half's imprisonment. Released, um, Piers has come into England to beg, beg the um, king for help to pay his ransom. So you can see the, the, the personal element um, of, of the loss of France as well as the, the sort of institutional and financial aspects. It's a picture of Henry VI, um, often described as the nadir of English kingship or the worst king ever to sit on the English throne. The question perhaps might be asked, what do you look for in, an, in a king? Military prowess. Henry VI, absolutely none. Um, he is recorded as being present at a number of battles, but he's um, never noted as wielding anything more lethal than a prayer book. He's also captured on is it two or three occasions, seemingly lacking the wit to actually run away. Also look for the king to be a source of justice and law. The serious breakdown of law and order in the 1450s suggests that he was unable to fulfil this role as well. There are a number of private battles um, which is obviously an indication that something rather serious has gone wrong. You'd also look for strength of character. He's Henry VI is dominated throughout his life by strong characters around him, including the Duke of Suffolk, Duke of Somerset and his Queen Margaret of Anjou. Um, but where Henry VI has a duty to be neutral and to uphold the law, these people do not necessarily, and they're partly responsible for what is often seen as a very partial, um, very biased kingship. Also be looking for physical health. Henry collapsed early in 1453 and remained comatose for at least 18 months. He's been described with some justification at this time as a useful political vegetable. And it's actually harsh, not necessarily unfair. How, what, how completely he, he recovered from um, a mental breakdown is, is never entirely clear. This is um, uh, an, from the ancient indictment files in KB9, um, comes from 1450, and is criticism of Henry VI's rule, and I'll um, read it out for you. It is to be inquired for our sovereign lord the king if John, if John Mersfield and William Mersfield, a Brightling and Sussex husbandman, at the spring market at Brightling on Sunday the Feast of St Anne, 28 Henry VI, quote, falsely said that the king was a natural fool and would oft times hold a staff in his hands with a bird on the end, playing therewith as a fool. And another king must be ordained to rule the land, saying that, that um, the king himself was no person able to rule it. If husbandmen in Sussex, the lowest level of, of, of kind of English society, are aware that the king is perhaps mentally simple, uh, unable to rule the realm, it's an indication of just how deep the, the, the knowledge of, of Henry VI's incapacity has gone in English society. And it all, the, the same document actually makes reference to Cade's Rebellion um, in 1450, which is another damning indictment. It's a big popular uprising against the king and his ministers. Oddly enough, England functioned rather better um, when Henry VI was comatose, um, unable to rule the realm. Richard, Duke of York, was appointed protector um, twice. This is um, a document from the patent rolls 
which um, details the appointment of Richard, Duke of York, as Protector of the Realm in 1455. It's the second protectorate. Um, but notes some of the rights and, and, and duties that were attached to this appointment. Though York was to some extent partisan in his government, um, he did supply the leadership that had been sorely lacking for the preceding 20 years. The next slide actually sees the protectorate government in action with um, various of the nobility signing um, a council warrant. You can see the signature of R. York for Richard, Duke of York, and beneath it is our Salisbury for Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, and to the right, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, um, along with various other more um, more neutral um, uh, nobility. But the two Neville brothers and um, the two Nevilles were um, very much York supporters. And in this case, they're signing um, a document which releasing um, or, or indicating their agreement to the Bishop of Ely, um, releasing a royal office or resigning a royal office. Also, the third, the third major reason for the collapse of England by about 1460 was the possibility of an alternative claimant to the throne. The key here is, and I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but that Henry VI is um, claiming from John of Gaunt, the third son of Edward III. Richard, Duke of York, is claiming from the younger brother of John of Gaunt, but also via the female line from the older brother of John of Gaunt, Lionel, Duke of Clarence. And it's that claim um, that is put forward um, as the, the, um, the senior claim. There was no precise definition of who should take the throne at any given time. Um, this hadn't really occurred before, whether you should, which, which order it should go in. But... The uh, Lancastrian kings were claiming the throne of France through the female line, so the bar to um, Richard Duke of York is rather weaker because of that. This document actually says in words what the previous one um, illustrated or tried to illustrate in, in a diagram. This is um, the Parliament roll from 1416, which Richard of York laid claim to the throne. And I'll just read out... Um, the uh, claim he says Richard Duke of York as son to Anne daughter to Roger Mortimer Earl of March son and heir to the said Philippa and daughter and heir to the said Lionel the third gotten son of King Edward, the, King Edward III the right title dignity royal and estate of the crowns of the realm of England and of France and of the lordship and land of Ireland of right law and custom appertaineth and belongeth afore any issue of the said John of Gaunt the fourth gotten son of the same King Edward. So it's basically saying that England had been ruled by the wrong royal family for the last 60 years. But even in what was a relatively favourable parliament to York, this was a step too far, and an uneasy compromise was reached whereby Henry VI maintained the throne for the rest of his life, but York was to become his heir. This compromise was rendered void by York's death at the Battle of Wakefield very shortly afterwards. And the period from 1459 to 1461 was a genuine civil war, seeing battles at Ludford Bridge, Bloor Heath, Northampton, Wakefield, Second St Albans, Mortimer's Cross and Towton. Um, it's an, actually a fairly substantial war. And the fluctuating military fortunes saw both sides in trouble. The Yorkists were attainted in 1459 and forced to flee abroad. Henry VI was captured in 1460. 
but was released in, um, after a Lancastrian victory in 1461. And this may actually, to some justification, of the older historiographical view of this period as carnage, sackage, and wreckage. But it's a bit more sophisticated than that. Some quite, some quite sophisticated um, political polemic here. This is the, att the attainment of the Yorkists in the 1459 Parliament, which, again, I will um, read out for you. Please it your highness to call to your noble remembrance, so this is the, the commons to the king, to call to your noble remembrance how ye had Richard, Duke of York, in his young age, in your most high presence and noble court, and him all that time cherished and favoured, and afterwards at a greater age, for the love, trust and affiance that you had in his person, made him your, 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 excuse me, your lieutenant of your realm of France and the Duchy of Normandy, and created his two eldest sons, earls, and granted him offices and great benefits, not only to him, but also to his, at contemplation of him, so that it could not be thought a subject of his estate of so little desert to have had more cause to have had true, obe uh, true obedience and diligence to serve and love his sovereign lord than he had. These benefits and many others that might be rehearsed notwithstanding, how falsely and traitorously he hath acquit him to your highness against God, nature, all truth and humanity. But in the middle of this polemic and in the middle of the, warf the actual warfare, there is a concern for some of those caught up in it. This is a pension um, for a thousand marks to the Duchess of York and her two young children, um, later George Duke of Clarence and Richard Duke of Gloucester, um, in December 1459, just after her husband has been attainted in Parliament. So am amidst the warfare, there is, there is a more chivalrous side to it. However, you can actually see, the, um, in a very dry form, the the carnage that, that um, occurred at this time. This is a fine roll um, from early 1461 which orders royal officials to hold inquisitions post-mortem for all those tenants in chief killed um, at Towton or just before. And the document goes on for quite some time. And the Battle of Towton in 1461, which is the decisive battle in the war, was alleged by contemporaries that 42,000 Lancastrians and 36,000 Yorkists fought. The official estimate of the dead was 28,000. Now, this is somewhat exaggerated, but historians might accept um, a total of 50,000 troops at Towton. If that's true, that's perhaps one in 15 of the adult males in the entire country. That is a really, really huge number, or a huge percentage of the population who are fighting. And it may well have been the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil. A um, somewhat romantic um, picture of the Battle of Towton, um, pictured by Graham Turner, and the actual reality um, of the mangled corpses um, amongst the, um, the fact that were actually found on the battlefield. The upshot, the Yorkist victory, saw Richard Duke of York's son, Edward, become Edward IV, um, this is a picture of him from capital of a plea roll in Hillary term of 1466. Actually, the only contemporary representation of Edward with a beard. You may just be able to make that out. The new king, Edward IV, had everything that Henry VI lacked. He was young. He was 18 to Henry's 39. He had martial um, prowess. He was a um, notable fighter on the battlefield. He was personally involved in government. Um, there are many examples of um, 
of his personal involvement, including being the only late medieval king to actually sit in King's bench, though the quality of some of the decisions he made there made the royal judges rather eager that he didn't come back. He also was part of a large family, which contrasted very well with the almost the, the dynastic exhaustion of the Lancastrian dynasty. But Edward actually, at certainly at this stage, lacked real political judgment. He managed to upset just about everybody with his marriage to a Lancastrian widow with a large needy family that he needed to um, provide for and which brought no benefit to him, his dynasty or to England. And while a falling out with the immensely powerful and overbearing Earl of Warwick was probably inevitable at some stage, um, if he could have delayed it a little while it would have been beneficial because it occurred at the time with continuing Lancastrian uprising. He's also unable to count on his brothers for support at this stage. George, Duke of Clarence, betrayed him for um, the Earl of Warwick, then came back, but was never fully, um, could be fully trusted. And Richard, was only, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was only 17 in 1469 and not yet the political force that he would later become. All this led to the bizarre reappearance of the pathetic Henry VI on the English throne in 1470 and was the result of an uneasy alliance between diehard Lancastrians, such as the Duke of Somerset or the Earl of Oxford, disaffected Yorkists, such as George Duke of Clarence, and what can only be described as self-serving nobility, in terms of, in, such as Warwick the Kingmaker, but all, was also down to ever the force, bad luck and misjudgment. This is an um, expenses warrant from 1470, um, detailing the release of Henry VI from the Tower, um, by the true favour and right acquittal of uh, our well-beloved cousins, the Duke of Clarence, the Earl of Warwick and Oxford, um, accompanied with many other knights, lords and squires. But the only hope of survival for this political marriage of convenience um, was through military victory. The short span of the re-adaption was occupied solely with the defence of the realm, a task that was failed as on the 14th of April 1471, Edward IV, with a substantial army, faced the Lancastrian forces at Barnet. His victory there and at Tewkesbury a month later ensured the extinction of the main Lancastrian line. Obscure exiles like Henry Tudor, not um, on the political radar. Um, this, is a, um, uh, this is part of the um, issue role, um, detailing the, the expenses of the government. And you can see here that um, this is um, warrant for expenditure um, for the burial of Henry of Windsor, also known as Henry VI, um, who had been taken from the Tower of London and to the uh, Church of Saint, uh, the Cathedral of St Paul's in London, where his body was displayed, and then to Chertsey for burial. And in this case, authorising the payment um, to the officials concerned of fifteen pounds. There were also expenses um, for the imprisonment of Margaret of Anjou at the same time. Edward IV's second reign saw the country at peace internally. The private warfare prevalent in the 1450s and 1460s was absent, and a powerful nobility kept the regions peaceful. Edward, however, did sanction an invasion of France in 1475, which was, um, which was ended by um, Edward being bought off by French money, and a campaign against Scotland in 1482. Warfare against both countries was a traditional hobby of English kings since the conquest, and foreign warfare showed um, the realm rather more united 
than at any time since 1450. This is a um, copy of um, a proclamation of an offensive alliance against France between England and Burgundy, agreed by the Treaty of London in 1474. In it, Edward undertook to land in France um, within a year of the signing of the treaty. Um, Charles of Burgundy would accept Edward as, um, as King of France, but in return Edward agreed that Charles should hold all his shares of a dismembered France in full sovereignty. But the fact that he was bought off meant that, however nice the parchment or however fancy the seal, doesn't, isn't necessarily worth what, what you're paying for it. And another type of document on, the, on this same theme um, Duke of Norfolk's indenture for his um, retinue for the invasion of France in 1475. It's a very standardised document. and been um, similar documents for the last 150 years. In it, the Duke agreed to bring 40 men-at-arms, of whom two should be knights, and 300 archers for service for a whole year, starting um, in January 1475. But it details the standard rates of pay, the standard division of spoils among the commanders, and as I say, quite a, quite a standard kind of document, but we have a lot of surviving indentures for the 1475 invasion. Edward IV's method of ruling, at least in part, was to allow preeminence to trust to nobility he trusted in a region, ensuring internal stability. The most important of these regional governors was his, was his brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, whose sway extended over the whole of northern England. Richard, um, through an aggressive stance towards Scotland, an even-handed and just lordship in the north, a conspicuous royal favour and national standing, quickly established his preeminence in the region and became the most powerful man in England after his brother. This particular document is from the Duchy of Lancaster collection, but shows Gloucester's retaining of ex-Neville um, servants um, at Midlam in the 1470s. Um, just after he was granted the Earl of Warwick's estates. This particular one is the fee um, of Thomas Blakeston of Blakeston Esquire, who, um, by reason of his retainer for term of his life by the Lord, at ten marks per annum, by letters patent, um, the tenor of which follows, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Constable and Admiral of England, to all, to all whom these presents shall come greeting. Know you that in consideration of the good and acceptable service that our well-beloved servant Thomas Blakeson of Blakeson Esquire has given and is due to give to us in the future according to the force, form and effect specified in certain indentures made between us, the aforesaid Duke and the said Thomas. So, um, indication of bastard feudalism in action, there's been a, um, a retainer for life, um, but this is the financial account authorising the payment of the, um, the actual money the retaining. England in 1483 was a country that appeared to be at peace. It was ruled by um, a relatively popular king and enjoying a revival of trade. It was 12 years since Edward IV defeated his Lancastrian opponents and the deaths of Henry VI and his son Prince Edward. And Edward's own sons seemed to provide the future for the dynasty and for England. A thriving court culture and a revival of trade suggested a degree of prosperity and a recovery from um, the Wars of the Roses. What happened next? I shall leave to Sean to say. I'll just go into a bit more detail about Richard's position in 1483. He was the key person in the realm after the king. Um, he dominated the northeast through a series of indentures with the earls of Northumberland 
um, and various gentry, but in the Parliament, right at the end of Edward's life, he's made hereditary sheriff of Cumberland, warden of the West March and constable of Carlisle, and receives a massive sum of £10,000, and is also given the opportunity to create a palatinate um, between Cumberland and southwest Scotland by conquest. So Edward is using Richard's martial skill to extend Yorkist kingship. So really he's, he's the right-hand man of the regime, without any doubt. And he's actually using this dominance of the north to exercise his good lordship and to demonstrate that he's a, a balanced ruler. He's really acquiring the skills of, of senior leadership, the kind of things which stood him in good stead later on. But um, he's getting exemptions for the areas under his control from the taxation that was granted to pay for the war with Scotland um, in 1482. So there's the king, and he dies. Um, in April, April the 9th, 1483, Edward suddenly dies. Um, what he'd managed to do was to put a lid on any hostility that was developing after his marriage in, 14, in the 1460s between the, the, the family of his, his new queen, um, Elizabeth Grey or Woodville. Um, all of this seems to have dissipated by the time the 1480s come along. But he got rather large. He wasn't the 18-year-old um, hero that he was in 1461 any longer. And when he died in April 1483, despite his size, um, this was an unexpected event, which left Richard in the north and the Prince of Wales at Ludlow. And um, although the Westminster machine kept going, um, there was really no lead leadership figure in London to take control of the situation. There were certainly no plans for a minority and what developed over the following three months resulted from reactions to how events unfolded and improvisations by the better able politicians around the court. Well, what's certain is that Richard wasn't scheming to become king, um, even before his brother's death or immediately after it. He was part of the regime. He wasn't some northern outsider excluded from things. He was certainly expected to, to take Edward V from his minority uh, into adult kingship, and that's what he swore to do as soon as Edward had died. But he was an, an awkward age at 13 and a half. He was too young to rule in his own right, but too old to be dominated for any length of time by a protectorate council. He certainly would have had his own opinions and exercised them. We're looking at something like a four to five year protectorate, which would have resulted in quite a lot of jostling for influence and perhaps a revival of the factionism that James has just talked about, potentially a return to the conditions that would allow civil war to, to revive. Edward was, had been brought up by the Woodvilles at Ludlow. Um, his uncle Earl Rivers was in charge of his household and various other members of the family had the appointments to bring, up, bring him up and educate him. So he'd, in some ways he'd been groomed to be king to that point in their, in their terms. And this was slightly worrying for the rest of the... Um, the polity. Although Edward died fairly suddenly, it wasn't so sudden that he could not have left instructions for how his son would be steered into adult rule. And there is some evidence, mainly from a near contemporary chronicler, Dominic Man Mancini, who was actually visiting London and made a record of his visit, which basically coincided with the whole period of Richard's seizure of the throne. And he invites us to see a struggle between Richard and the Woodvilles for control of the young king. 
Um, and this is his text, that the Duke of Gloucester should govern because Edward in his will ordered it and because by law he should come to rule. That is, he's the next man to take control of things until Edward V is old enough to do it himself. And Richard was a natural choice, as I, I've said already, a man in high favour and certainly a matchless record of loyalty, unlike his brother George and various other members of the nobility. But really, we've got no evidence that there was any conflict between the Woodvilles and Richard and that there was any great fear of what he would do. This is all slightly back-projected from the time after Richard became king as a way of explaining how it had happened um, to see it as a, the result of a struggle that Richard became king. And really the fact that he was able to surprise and outwit the Woodvilles suggests that there was no real hostility, no inkling of a threat from Richard to that family. And it's even suggested in the Chronicle and Chronicle that Edward IV actually intended for his son to accede to the throne as a minor, as Richard II had done in 1377, and then to rule in his own right with a protectorate until he was old enough to be an independent adult king. And as James has said earlier, the situation was of a, a fairly stable community of nobles, each with fairly dominant groups of territories, but representing royal power and focused on projecting Yorker's kingship. And I think Edward V's kingship in these terms might have allowed this balance of power to continue, whereas to see Richard moving from um, a preeminent position as a noble to actually becoming regent and running the, the kingdom on behalf of the young king might have unbalanced things a bit too quickly. And probably the move for a quick coronation of Edward V suggests an urge to stabilise things after this little wobble of uncertainty with Edward IV's death. But the council was probably reluctant to allow any one party or individual to dominate, and this reflected back onto the Woodville control of Edward V, and that obviously worried the community of nobles. And members of the council, especially William Lord Hastings, who had been a chief friend and ally of Edward IV, pushed for a small military escort for Edward V on his journey from Ludlow to London, and this was agreed by the council in the best interests of everyone. So at the end of April 1483, Mancini and the Crowland Chronicle report how Richard moved to take custody of King Edward. Initially, this wasn't seen as anything threatening. He made moves to his ally, Henry Duke of Buckingham, um, and arranged to travel down from the north and rendezvous with Edward V, Earl Rivers, and the other Woodvilles in the Midlands so they could all have a magnificent entry into London together. And on the 30th of April, Rivers was arrested at Stony Stratford in Northamptonshire, and Edward was moved into Richard's custody at Northampton. So Richard, Duke of Gloucester, now has custody of the king. And they travelled on to London on the 4th of May, while Earl Rivers, Richard Grey, and Sir Thomas Vaughan, who'd run Edward V's household, were packed off to Sheriff Hutton uh, to await their fate, which was execution. So Richard's justification for what he'd done was to safeguard both his own position and the protectorate of Edward V against an undue influence from the Woodville family, the Queen's family. And this was pretty much accepted, um, but there was a little bit of spin as well in what Richard did. He produced cartloads of weapons, which were apparently what the Woodvilles were going to use um, in some sort of coup to enforce their position. We don't know if this is true. The soldiers of Richard and Buckingham 
were pretty substantial and they backed their possession of the new king and really this was an overwhelming force that deterred anyone else from rising raising to arms. And he pressed his position to become protector by the 8th of May 1483 as a re reaction to this Queen Elizabeth Woodville and the youngest son of Edward IV, Richard Duke of York, fled to sanctuary at Westminster. So we've got a crucial period of um, a few weeks where Richard has to try and stabilise things now he's in charge. He promoted some of his own followers, um, but mainly to contain the Woodville network, and all this was done in Edward V's name. The Woodvilles hadn't done anything to forfeit their lands because there was no crime, there was a preemptive strike against what they might have done, um, but Richard made sure that most of their lands were seized, and Woodville allies lost office, notably Chancellor Thomas Rotherham, Archbishop of York. Edward Woodville um, had put to sea in April 1483 to deal with a French pirate, who the English called Lord Cords, and he was still at sea with a large force, which was a potential military threat, and, and Richard spent a lot of time organising defences and military activity to try and contain this, this sea force of a few thousand soldiers. So he's, he's moving very much to contain things and to stabilise his own position. And here is a document with his signature, Richard Gloucester, and the sign manual of Edward V, which is a little faded, but it is up there. This document's at the back of the room, so you can have a closer look at it later. So things are working pretty smoothly Parliament has been called, the coronation is still planned for, Edward V is still going to be king, it's just going to be a slightly different support that's put, that puts him on the throne. Things progress a little quickly, a little more quickly rather, although things are pretty much the same in, in central administration. Edward IV's old household men are replacing the Woodville clients around the country and also around Edward V, so it's a, a, a transfer of, of protection around the new king basically but it's a look backwards to the old Yorkists rather than the, the Woodvilles who were seen by many people as parvenus and rather new and uh, aggressive in terms of the, um, the gifts and awards they'd had from the crown. But Richard wasn't really placing his own followers into the centre of things yet. What he did do was strengthen his alliance with the Duke of Buckingham and, and there was a massive amount of patronage in the Welsh marches Justiciar of North and South Wales, um, steward of the Duchy of Lancaster lands in Wales. So Buckingham is really made a virtual Prince of Wales by this grant in May 1483. And it's a, the first time when there's a real change in the power structure that Edward IV had set up. And it, it could be that Richard is now strengthening his position for the next stage, which could be to usurp the crown. But this didn't come out in public at this stage. In terms of what the protectorate was doing, Richard was working very hard to stabilise finances, and his work in this area convinced many of good intentions for Edward V and the way the country would work once he was king. But things had changed after about three weeks. Uh, Richard wrote to York requesting troops and justified his actions by reiterating the idea of a Woodville plot against him and the old nobility. So he's seeking alliances in the old ancient families and the people who wanted to see the old Yorkist regime continue. But having already broken them at the end of April and during the start of May, it's unlikely that there were any real threat. So is this Richard's clear intention to seize the crown only a month after his brother had died? 
Well, here's the flavour of what's going on at this time. This is a letter from Simon Stolworth um, in the Stoner collection here, which you can see at the back. And it's cataloguing events that are going on on the 9th of June and just before it. And basically, there's not much to report. Although the Queen and the Duke of York are in sanctuary, um, Gloucester and Buckingham have maintained the business of the council and plans are underway for the coronation. And Edward V is receiving visitors in his apartments at the Tower. Um, there's even time for a bit of private business to, um, to speak to the Duke of Gloucester about a denization for a foreigner. So this in attention to detail that Richard is applying to government might be disguising the activities behind the scenes for his preparation for the coup. The coup. Because the following day, Richard Radcliffe is sent north to York on a secret mission to generate some troops. And four days after this note was written, uh, Richard executed Lord Hastings in the Tower. So we have a sort of debate about whether Richard was acting against the Woodvilles uh, and Lord Hastings and how their actions had pushed him to something, or was this a whole process of engineering things so he could seize the crown at this time? It needs a lot more investigation. And historians like Rosemary Horrocks have applied a lot of time to analysing this particular period and haven't quite got to the answer yet because the evidence isn't there. So on Friday the 13th of June, a stage-managed council meeting at the Tower resulted in Lord Hastings' summary execution. And again, this is explained by Richard as a threat to the protectorate involving the use of witchcraft and all sorts of... Um, things familiar from Shakespeare's play. Of course, that's probably the only evidence for it anyway. So despite this, plans for the coronation of Edward V continued. That's now the 22nd of June. Uh, to make this happen, the Duke of York had to be brought from sanctuary, and so the ancient Cardinal Boucher was brought to persuade the Queen to release him on the 16th of June, and he was lodged in the tower with his brother from this time. The next day, the coronation was postponed until November, and Parliament was cancelled. And Richard took the throne on the 26th of June. And the basis for this was that he was a legitimate heir of his father, Richard, Duke of York. Um, and anyone who's seen Mike Jones's recent work will know the basis for this um, allegation of, of Richard, that is, his father was illegitimate, uh, his brother was illegitimate, but he was the legitimate son of the Duke of York, whom he resembled very closely. Uh, it was said that Edward did look more like a French archer than Richard did. And so the reaction to this, on 21st of June, between Hastings's execution and Richard's seizure of the crown, is another letter from Simon Stolworth to Thomas Stoner. So the tone of things has changed. There's a lot of shock over the execution of Hastings. There's no time for private business matters. And all news is about speculation about what's going to happen next. And the style is more concerned, um, since there's a lot of armed men around the city and there's a lot of anxiety. Archbishop Rotherham is still under arrest, and Hastings' former mistress, Elizabeth Shaw, is also under arrest, and Edward IV's former secretary, Oliver King, has been um, arrested as well. There's no hint that Gloucester's information about a Woodville plot has been circulated widely, but the prospect of 20,000 men descending on London is explained solely to keep the peace. And this is a great exaggeration, but perhaps indicates the extent to which uh, rumours were built up at the time when nobody really knew what was going on. 
And this next image really shows why it's very difficult for us to understand what was going on then. Uh, this is a little note that the wool merchant George Selly wrote for himself based on information um, from the prior of St. John of Jerusalem. It's a mixture of possibilities and the blackest rumours. So the Scots are invading. No, they weren't. Uh, the king has been killed. Um, that Buckingham and Gloucester were in peril. That the um, Bishop of Ely was in danger. All of these leading figures um, sort of building up the possibilities. But basically, if George Selly, who was well-connected in London, couldn't separate truth from rumour, then there's little chance for us doing so 500 years later. So initially, on the 22nd of June, Richard had used public speeches at St Paul's Cross to ed emphasise Edward IV's illegitimacy. But this was very quickly changed to suggest that Edward's children, Edward IV's children, were illeg illegitimate because of an existing contract between Edward before he married Queen Elizabeth. And again, this has been discussed very widely by historians, so I won't go into it here. And as a reaction to this, when Richard became king, the evidence we have for his justification is on the Parliament roll, but it's in the form of a petition from the three estates of the realm asking him to take the throne um, for the, the good governance of the realm, basically, and is condemning Edward IV's dissolute living and the way that the country was sliding, which uh, it wasn't particularly bad <laughs> compared to what it was in the 1450s and early 1460s. Richard was crowned at Westminster on the 6th of July and this was really a national ceremony and it wasn't a takeover by the northerners as some people like to project it. He's actually become king as the best candidate in the circumstances. And there's very little commentary or reaction to Richard's assumption of power, possibly because of the force involved and the military presence around London made this a fait accompli, but there's no real hostility there. And there's a, a picture of, of Richard from the Society of Antiquaries, um, probably the earliest representation we have of him. Here's a text of Richard's claim to the throne on the Parliament Royal from January 1484. And you can read this at the back. It is in English, and it's, it's fairly clear. Great detail about why he felt he had to take the throne. And once he was king... Like most kings, he went on a progress to show himself to the country um, and to cement his authority. By the end of August, he was back in his heartland in Yorkshire and was met in a very lavish celebration. Um, part of this was to remove him from Westminster, where the old Yorkist of Edward IV's household was still around, into more familiar surroundings, but really... It's, it's still disguising the fact that it's his national status that I talked about at the start that allows his usurpation to succeed unopposed. So once he was at York, his son Edward of Midlam was made Prince of Wales. There was endowments to York Minster, the creation of a college, and tax reductions again um, for the region, all of which emphasised that he was a good lord to the north. Once he was away from London, however, there's the first signs of, of uprisings to try and get the princes out of the tower. Um, we know basic details of this, but certainly didn't come to anything. But it's at this time that we first see Henry Tudor in the context of a rebellion as a, ri a rival to Richard. And certainly Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, and Elizabeth Woodville 
are now allied in conspiracy with John Morton, Bishop of Ely. And this might be seen as some evidence of at least the prince's fate being known um, because Elizabeth Woodville wouldn't be acting for nobody like Tudor if she thought her sons were still alive and salvageable from the tower. But that is pure speculation for which no one's found any evidence. And by the end of September 1483, the Duke of Buckingham has turned on Richard and is involved in the conspiracy. There's a picture of what Henry Tudor might have looked like around about this time, aged about 25. I think he's got an orange, not a hand grenade. <laughs> Other evidence of, of what Richard's doing to cement things. This is um, Richard's grant to John Howard to make him Duke of Norfolk on the 28th of June, 1483. Now, the youngest of the princes in the tower held this title from 1477. So by granting it to Howard... What can we read into it? Uh, is it that the Duke of York is dead and the title is vacant? Uh, I don't think Richard would have been so careless as to publicly announce that by granting something to Howard like this, because this is a, in the form of a charter, a very public kind of grant. Um, but it's an inter interesting point to consider whether the grants, previous grants were null and void. There hadn't been any resumption because Parliament hadn't met yet. So it's an interesting angle to take. Certainly servants of the princes were dismissed by the end of June, and the last man to record seeing them was Dr John Argentine, and there's no reports of them being seen after mid-July 1483. And as I was checking things on the Richard III website last night, you might have seen the, um, the programme last November about a letter found um, on the Isle of Bute in the Marquis of Bute's library, dated to the 29th of June 1483, uh, which is allegedly written by Richard ordering James Tyrrell to select someone else to perform secret verbal instructions. Perhaps this is too close to the story that Shakespeare projects to us. And it's, it looks like it's been seen as a Victorian forgery, but it needs a, a bit more investigation. But it's still interesting focus on this period um, at the end of June in relation to the princes. So, there's a bit of momentum against Richard. And certainly by October 1483, there is a massive rebellion across the south. Um, rather than being uncoordinated, I think... It's an attempt to split Richard's forces by having staggered risings across the whole of the south. But actually, the, it's a period of appalling weather, uh, which actually does lead to lack of coordination. And the rebellion is defeated. The Duke of Buckingham is uh, abandoned by his retainers and executed without seeing Richard so he could plead for his life. And Tudor, Tudor is unable to get across from Brittany with a small army in time to have any involvement in this. Uh, I think which probably saved his life because I think we can we can speculate fairly certainly that Buckingham would have gone for the throne in the same way that um, the Earl of Lincoln might have done uh, in 1487 had he won the Battle of Stoke against Henry VII. And crucially, the Stanley family yet again didn't do anything, uh, a track record of doing this. Um, but many of Edward's household men, as a result of the rebellion, fled across the sea to Tudor's court in exile and actually gave him some credibility as a leader. So Richard had to use his northern allies to plug this gap across the south of England. And again, it's, it's emphasised that he's a northern figure. Um, and probably you can see things in the Cronin Chronicle where there's a, a southern hostility against him um, because he is seen as a northern ruler. Um, but he had no choice at this time. And I think because Tudor has escaped... The rest of Richard's reign is pretty much seen 
as a, an attempt to get things into position to defeat him, and really what Richard's planning for is a, a safe and stable reign once his enemies are out of the way. And I think many, many nobles are happy to work with Richard, receive his patronage, but are awaiting the confrontation that they know will come uh, with Tudor and his French and Breton allies. And here's the famous um, warrant from Richard to the Lord Chancellor asking for the, the great seal to be sent to him at Lincoln. And this is a postscript all in his own handwriting, condemning the Duke of Buckingham as the most untrue creature living. And uh, for that reason, he didn't get much mercy when he was captured at Salisbury on the 2nd of November. And again, you can see this at the back of the room. So there's enough evidence in the brief time that Richard was actually ruling, mainly um, 1484 and the first part of 1485, that he had got a programme of good government in mind. He certainly sets up um, councillors to deal with poor men's petitions, which became a court of requests 50 years later. He revived similar sort of equity jurisdiction in the north, because uh, his council of the north as a duke had been very successful. He's really emphasising that officers should perform their duties. He's got a load of new oaths for public officers and stewards. He outlaws his brother's hated benevolence taxes and himself didn't ask for any taxation in his first parliament in 1484, uh, which most kings normally do. So there's enough indication of Richard knowing that what he wants to do and how he's going to be a good king. He's also got a strong moral emphasis, and some of this might be political propaganda, as seen in the titulus regius, the condemnation of Jane Shaw, and the proclamation against Henry Tudor in December 1484. And it's been seized upon by his detractors as evidence of his hypocrisy and expediency um, and manipulation in, in attempting to keep his support. But I'm not sure that it wasn't actually part of his character. He's also um, preparing for a war with Scotland in 1484, picking up where he left off in 1482, and this again is seen as a good thing because it's, it's reviving England's traditional foreign policies and is also managing the Breton and French policy very effectively to try and get his hands on Henry Tudor. There's also evidence of his interest in, in a crusade which he voiced to um, Nicholas von Poplau in 1484 who's a German visitor to the court. And again this promises a stronger role for England in Europe at the time. So there's enough there to say, especially with the... Um, the rule in the north in the 1470s that Richard was an experienced uh, ruler of a region and he would have made an effective ruler as a king had he had more time. But basically his capacity to rule without restriction depends on defeating Tudor. And when his own son, Prince Edward of Wales, dies in April 1484, this is suddenly even more important because he has no other heirs apart from John of Gloucester, his illegitimate son before his marriage. So, the summer of 1484 saw increased activity to get Tudor out of Brittany, but by October he'd managed to escape Richard's clutches at the point of capture and get to the French court, a more dangerous supporter. Certainly a sponsored invasion seemed likely, and in May 1485 Richard left London to prepare, prepare for the confrontation. By the 18th of August he'd mustered a powerful army of many noble retinues and lots of gentry at Leicester, maybe as high as 30,000 soldiers, some people have said. And Tudor lands in Wales on the 7th of August and is marching through the wilderness with a bit of a ragtag army um, and not much hope in a, in a face-off um, when it comes without possibly allies like the Stanleys changing sides. And I suppose the most recent work on 
the battle site, whether it's nearer to Atherston or Ambien Hill, the traditional site, or down the valley near Dadlington, um, to some extent it's an academic debate, but it does suggest different how he would have used his military skill, which he was very experienced in fighting, to try and um, give himself the best chance of winning. So it is an interesting discussion, um, and we're still trying to find various um, field name evidence in chancery cases and all sorts of things which could help all of these cases. So Tudor certainly didn't have a very large force. Um, the Stanleys were on the sidelines. This is a very famous and familiar story. Richard saw a quick chance to end the fighting by killing his enemy, identified him by his standard. So he races across the battlefield, gets caught up um, in a melee. And this, this end to his charge allows the Stanleys to join in uh, on Tudor's side, and Richard is killed. And here's the evidence that certainly Mike Jones has used to sort of um, reposition the battlefield near to Atherston. Payments of um, damage to crops for billeting troops at the Abbey of Merivale. Oops. And pay payments for crop damage at harvest time to these parishes which are a little further southwest um, from the traditional battle site. And again, you can see these at the back for a closer look. And because Richard had died in battle, it made it much harder for his supporters to challenge Tudor rule after the 22nd of August 1485. Northern Risings in April 1486 and the Irish invasion of Lambert Simnel's rebellion in June 87 drew some Ricardian support, but by then the Earls of Derby and Oxford had consolidated their position and the royal household under Jasper Tudor um, was strong enough, despite its leather armour, to see off the rebels and preserve Henry's um, position on the throne. And then Henry focused very hard on containing Richard's gentry followers, especially in the north, um, through bonds restricting their behaviour and loyalty. He actually had far more difficulty controlling the deeper, deeper Yorkist loyalties, which were exposed by Perkin Warbeck's reappearance as Richard IV. Um, and certainly this plot tried to reopen the politics of 1459 to 61 and 69 to 71 and Henry was very nearly deposed as a result uh, at the Battle of Blackheath. Henry probably kept the throne where Richard lost it because whereas Richard took chances as a martial leader, Henry left nothing to chance and let everyone else take the risks for him and then used his guile to actually divide and outwit his opponents um, in different ways. And here's the happy couple, Henry and Elizabeth. I don't know who was happier. Um, with the papal bull granting dispensation for their marriage. Um, and the, the basic um, premise for this is to end the half century or even century of infighting in the English nobility, reuniting the two sides of Edward III's family. Here we have um, Queen Elizabeth's signature on a warrant for... Um, payments for horses to get her back from um, Prince Arthur's christening in Winchester. It sounds like, from reading it, that they're kind of stranded. <laughs> I don't know whether Henry was so stingy that he wouldn't pay for their return fare. But anyway, he certainly repressed her role within the polity. At least she became a focal point um, for sympathies like her mother had done, Elizabeth Woodville. And she was valuable as the last heir of York. And this made it essential 
that the princes remained dead, whether they were actually physically dead or their memory was dead. Um, and the dynastic problems growing out of Perkin Warbeck grew from the fact that the prince's deaths could not be proved. And this is what plagued Henry um, for most of his reign. Part of the propaganda was to get hold of the Yorkist princesses, the, the nobility who were underage, this is the Duke of Buckingham, the young earls of Warwick and Westmoreland, all being guided and kept by Margaret Beaufort um, in 1486. We can only speculate what that would have meant. Probably tied up in a cellar somewhere, I don't know. And here we have payments to prisoners in the tower, um, including the Earl of Surrey um, and his servants at a very healthy £9 10 a month. It doesn't sound like a harsh imprisonment to me. And Surrey had fought alongside his father, John Howard, at Bosworth, and he was considered a focal point for Yorkist support and was actually listed as a casualty at the Battle of Bosworth. But he was imprisoned for four years. And during that time, he probably had a long time to think about things and... Um, had a realistic assessment of the successes or chances of Yorkist opposition to Henry, and this led him to be, actually become one of the Tudor regime's most loyal agents, first in the north, in the war with Scotland in 1497, and eventually as Lord Treasurer, and in East Anglia after 1500 as an ally of the Earl of Oxford. And his career is kind of symptomatic of how Henry VII was able to convert people and therefore keep himself on the throne. So in the context of his age... Richard drew little criticism at the time, and there's in fact a lot of evidence for support and praise for him um, by contemporaries. And he's a maligned figure because of it was essential for the Tudors to um, propagandise against him. Uh, the literary history of Polydor Virgil, Thomas More, and Edward Hall, and of course of Shakespeare primarily, and then of the 19th century condemnation of his actions in becoming king, quite a weight of opinion to, to fight against. He was a product of the Wars of the Roses, as hopefully we've shown. This is a, a long period where most of the nobles are brought up um, with an awareness of what's happened to their fathers, brothers, their tenants and retainers. And he's actually completely soaked in this atmosphere of civil war over the previous 30 years. And given time, his track record showed that he could have made a, a fine king, but his urge to smash opposition as quickly as possible to give him the secure footing is perhaps what lost him the crown on the battlefield. And it took the ruthless rule of Henry VII to end the cycle of recurring waves of conspiracy and struggling for the crown, even if he spent almost all of his 24 years in struggling to do this. This event was recorded live on March the 20th, 2007, at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Sean Cunningham and James Ross. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.